The best moments in reading are where you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things that you'd thought special, particular to you. And here it is, set down by someone else, a person you've never met, maybe even someone long dead. And it's as if a hand has come out and taken yours. This is one of my favourite short speeches in like any play. It's from Alan Bennett's The History Boys. And it speaks not only of the power of reading, but of telling one's own story. So you never know whose hand you are going to reach out and clasp. My guest today shows the way the hands of the biblical storytellers have reached out to her, grasping her hand through the familiarity of experience and emotion. And yet that is not the end. See, the movement goes both ways as she explores the way her own story reaches back into these narratives and characters penned long ago, bringing fresh perspective and new life. Her work lights torches to help others find their own way back to the hands of these biblical migrants, the communities who told their stories, and the ancient of days who saw them through it all. My name is Liam Miller. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. My guest today is Karen Gonzalez, speaker, author, advocate. We discuss her soon-to-be-released book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong, which you can pre-order now. Karen is an immigrant from Guatemala now living in Baltimore, Maryland, and has worked extensively as an immigrant activist. In her book and in our chat, the stories of scripture, the stories of her advocacy, and the story of her family weave together, speaking to each other to reveal the compassionate nature of a God who sees, cares, and acts for those so often pushed to the margins of our world. Please welcome Karen to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, Karen Gonzalez, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate your having me. Uh, you're welcome. So you've got the book coming out, The God Who Sees uh, Immigrants, the Bible, and a Journey to Belong, uh, and the Journey to Belong. Uh, how are you feeling? Are you excited? Uh, you know, um, how's it feel as, as you get closer and closer to your, the, the release date? It feels surreal and exciting and a little bit scary all at one time. Uh, it is exciting to put it out in the world, but there's also so much pressure. You know, before you get a book contract, you just hope you get a book contract. <laughs> and once you get a book published, you're just excited that it's going to be published. But then you find out, oh, it matters if it sells. It matters how it does the first week, how it does in pre-orders. Mm. So that's a little bit scary and anxiety yeah. producing, but I'm really thankful for the process of writing and for uh, having had the opportunity to do it. So, yeah. Well, that's why before we get any further, let's, let's encourage people that while you're listening or watching, uh, you know, open up whatever place you like to buy books from or let's get these pre-orders happening. Uh, and if you're listening to this, if you've somehow found this interview in a couple of months, the book will still be available. Uh, yeah. And also it means that you'll be able to read it and leave reviews. So let's just make sure that's happening. Let's help Karen out. You know, we don't want to, you know, succumbing to any, any great, we don't want to publish us throwing her in a hole or something like that. So. Right. <laughs> uh, so maybe a lot of the people listening here don't know much about you or, or what this book's about. So maybe just give us a little bit, before we get into any specifics, a little bit of the, what led you to write this book? Like, what was the, you know, you know, because you could have 
you know, a book takes time, takes a lot of energy. Uh, what was the, the kind of really driving force for you to go, you know what, the only way I'm going to satisfy this push is, is to write the book? Honestly, this sounds very cliche and predictable, but I was really inspired by going to see Hamilton, which, you know, it is a story about an immigrant, a white immigrant, given, you know, but he comes and the story is told from his perspective and he's an outsider. And it brings a kind of richness and depth to the story, I think, to have his perspective on the founding of the country and the Revolutionary War and all of these things that happened in early America. But I came home from that experience and I started just reflecting on why don't immigrants write our own stories? I've read so many books about immigration written by, and, and I'm not saying people shouldn't write those books if they're not immigrants, because I think a lot of different voices are needed and people will listen to a variety of voices depending on their own social location. But I was really discouraged by the fact that we're not writing our own stories. When I knew so many people who are immigrants working in immigrant ministry and immigrant activism and advocating even at national levels, you know, for immigrants. And I wanted to tell that story from our perspective, tell our own story. And one of the things that I really wanted to do that I see done a lot is I did not want to tell someone else's story because I feel like the only thing that we own is our story, you know, and if we don't own that, then what exactly belongs to us? And so I also wanted to be sure to do that. And in the book, there are two stories that are not my own, but they're actually composite stories of people that I encountered. They're not any one person's story. And so that was really my driving factor, to be honest. I'm like, what can actual immigrants bring to this conversation and speak into? And I also wanted to write from the perspective of an immigrant reading the scriptures, because that affects how we read the scriptures, how we read the book of Ruth, how we read the story of Joseph and Genesis. And so that was another strong motivator for me, being familiar with Mujerista theology and womanist theology. And I quoted a lot of womanist scholars, actually, in my book, because I really was inspired by the way they read the Bible. And I learned so much uh, reading their perspectives. So, yeah. So you did say, you know, you go through the scriptures and look at these immigrant stories, such as Ruth such as, as um, Joseph, Jesus, you know, like uh, um, Abraham, uh, a bunch mm -hmm. of these stories you're touching in on. Uh, so seeing as you saw Hamilton and were inspired, uh, which of these biblical immigrants deserves their big Broadway smash hit? Like it can be hip-hop, <laughs> it doesn't have to be, but which biblical story needs, you know, because Joseph has one, okay, so let's knock Joseph. He does have one. Joseph <laughs> has one. And Jesus kind of has one too. Okay, so we've got, let's yeah, knock those two out. So it doesn't have to be one you touched on in the book, but what, you know, biblical immigrant, biblical's tale needs its, its big Broadway hit. Okay. I think the one that is definitely epic that could have its own musical on stage, music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, is Ruth. Mm -hmm. Because it's so compelling and it's so shocking and there's a lot of mutuality in that story that you see there's a lot of lot going on a lot of uh different gender dynamics 
uh, also sociopolitical dynamics. I think that could be a very interesting thing. Also, I mean, I didn't go into this in the book because it's about immigration, but Ruth, pretty forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listening to her mother-in-law <laughs> and uh, approaching uh, Boaz on the threshing floor is pretty scandalous. So I think that could make a really interesting stage, mm. you know, stage. Yeah, game. yeah. No, I think I, I, I'll, I'll buy my tickets, so that's good. Um, we sold it. That's what you can work on next. Now that the book's done, uh, start yeah. when you're smash here. I'm going to contact Lemon Will Miranda. He lives in New York. It's only three hours from me. Yeah, it can be done. <laughs> so, so the book's a mix of, 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 of these, you know, looking at these biblical stories, reading the scriptures from, from the lens of immigration. Uh, it's also got, you know, analysis and, and commentary on the current U.S. Uh, context of, of immigration, uh, and and there's also your like there's memoir sections, um, parts of your own story. What was it like, kind of weaving these together? Was that something you always envisioned doing? Did it kind of come out naturally as it went? Uh, did you have trouble finding a balance? What was it like to kind of hold these these different parts together um, to make? Because it comes out as a really um, like beautiful and complimentary whole. So I'm just curious mm-hmm. how you kind of got to that point. So I did plan that initially in my book proposal. You know, I was doing a presentation on helping immigrant kids to thrive in the school system here in the U.S. And I came across a quote uh, by, it was a Native American proverb that said, you know, something like, tell me a fact and I might remember it, you know, uh, give me a little bit of knowledge and maybe I'll act on it. But it said, but tell me a story and it'll live in my heart forever. And the other books that I've read about immigration always focused on sort of like the, you know, policy and, uh, you know, telling, telling things like maybe little snippets of stories, but more framing the biblical uh, command, you know, to welcome the immigrant. But I was, when I wrote the book proposal, I thought, no, this needs to be a story because people need to know that there are real people that anytime you think about immigration, you're thinking about a biblical issue because you're thinking about human beings. That's who's part of immigra- the immigra- any immigration process in any country, right? It's people and people are image bearers of God, all people. And so I really wanted to tell the story of biblical immigrants for six chapters and then tell my own story over five chapters. And initially my editor uh, really fought hard for this and won ultimately. Initially I just wanted the story to to speak for itself, you know, some kind of artsy way of communicating, but she really convinced me. She's like, no, um, readers will not get it. You need to say, she's like, even the part where you just mentioned, you know, I mentioned early in the book that my dad, had a picture of Che Guevara over my crib. And my editor said, oh, you need to explain who that is. There's a lot of white people who have no idea <laughs> who that is. So, uh, so yeah, so I had to give a lot more detail, but I always intended to tell the story through the sacraments. Mm. And so to tell my own story of faith. And it really opened my eyes to how much Catholicism shaped my early imagination of faith and still does, you know, to a certain degree, and why I've always felt drawn to liturgical churches. Mm. 
so yeah, there was, there was that plan initially, but honestly, I feel like I worked it out with my editor in the company of the Holy Spirit. Like it really came together well during the summer. Mm. Thank you. So you mentioned there, um, you touched on that, that the, your, the memoir sections are organized around the sacraments. Uh, now, now, I was just curious, as having now gone through this process and reflected on your journey and the sacraments together, that even now in a church which uh, doesn't practice as many sacraments or doesn't um, conceive of as many sacraments in the way uh, that, you, that you list, how did that process, I guess, affect the way you engage with the sacraments or reflect on the sacraments or, or, or receive it? Did it change much for you? Did you notice a change after having reflected on it and your journey? I think the biggest change I saw was in taking the Eucharist because the Eucharist has always been for me this mystery of faith. Um, this, you know, I, I read a lot of Eastern Orthodox theology about 10 years ago and their view of the Eucharist is this mystery. Uh, we don't know what it is exactly, but we know we enter into Christ's likeness and identity that's what we're after, you know, in this act. I think the biggest thing that changed for me with that is that I kind of realized how much for me the Eucharist was about liberation, that there's a resonance in communion for people who seek uh, liberation, not only identifying with Christ, suffering, but, you know, seeking the freedom that Christ promises and I think that really changed significantly. We do baptisms at my church as needed. And um, I did reflect when we did a baptism, particularly early in January, um, on, on that whole experience, because we do infant baptism at my church. Most every baptism is an infant. And I did get to uh, think about that and see this community gather, you know, around this little baby and and welcome him or her into the faith. And yeah, so there's aspects that come up for me every now and then, but I think the strongest is, is communion because I even wrote about Archbishop Romero's death and how he was assassinated in the midst of um, the Eucharist. You know, he was just raising the chalice of wine to bless it. And, and somebody came into the church and, and murdered him in the midst of that act. And yeah, so it was very, yeah, it very much did prompt that, that in me when it comes to the Eucharist. I think the other sacraments, like anointing the sick, you know, I've only seen that a handful of times. Um, and I never got to do confirmation in the Catholic church, but I wanted to write about the ones that I was most familiar with. And I think, sadly, we don't do a, a sacrament of reconciliation mm. in the Protestant church. Mm. You know, we don't consider confession or penance to be a sacrament. And so unless you do that privately, you know, uh, there won't be this, this sacramental time for you with confession. So, yeah, it was deeply moving to me and it made me very grateful for the Catholic church and it, Latin American Catholicism is very different from American. I did write a little bit about that throughout the book. 
but there's still a lot of commonality, you know, mm. when it comes to the sacraments. That's the place where we're all united. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Um, so moving into the, the biblical stories and, and, and characters, uh, you start with Ruth. And as I was reading it, it's interesting the way Ruth is kind of framed as almost this this parable for what is possible for Israel if they actually follow the commands about welcoming the immigrant and caring for, for the widow and the, and the stranger and, and how that does lead to, to, to flourishing. And in, in the end, it's, it's so, so, such a high level of flourishing that it actually leads to the line of David. Like it's, that's how good things can be if, um, if they actually follow the rules and don't overpick the, the fields and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, what's been your journey with this book? And I guess, how did it even begin to change as you worked in, in the U.S.'s contemporary immigration system? So I have to say that the first time I heard of this book, and I actually talk about this in that chapter, is the focus I always heard was on Boaz, that Boaz was this sort of knight in shining armor. He was the kinsman redeemer who saved these poor, vulnerable women. And that's what I'd always heard. And then when I started reading the book, I'm like, well, you know, he's actually a very minor supporting character in this story. The only person who undergoes significant change in the book is Naomi. She goes from being someone who's angry and bitter at God, right? To someone who comes back around to seeing the, the way that God has given her, took away her sons and her husband, but gave her Ruth. And that Ruth is actually at the end, right? They say better than seven sons, you know? So, so I started seeing the story more as I got older as a story of immigrants. You have Naomi and her husband who migrate to Moab because of famine. And then you have Ruth who migrates back, who migrates, you know, in her case for the first time to Bethlehem, but Naomi returns home because of another famine. And I reflected on how similar that is to what drives migration today. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's people don't want to leave their countries. It's need that drives people. And often it is this need for food. Uh, often I've read people, I've heard people say, oh, you know, Ruth was a refugee. And I'm like, no, she wasn't. Not by, <laughs> not by today's standards. You may feel that way about her and that's well and good. But actually, by today's definition, from the UN as well as you know the U.S. government, uh, she's an economic immigrant or a family-based immigrant, and they don't receive the same considerations that refugees receive. And in fact, she'd have no immigration solution if she came to America today. And so I started seeing that story less as one about Boaz and more as one about wow, this is what it means to flourish. This is what it means if we actually obeyed God, uh, not just Israel, although certainly Israel, right? Because it was written uh, to them initially. But it shows us that there's this mutual blessing, right? That there's a, not, it's not just that Bethlehem blesses Ruth by receiving her and giving her a safe place to work and, and treating her with kindness, but she blesses them too. She brings her hard work. She brings her love and her kindness and her loyalty. Um, She brings a lot to this community too. And they bless one another. And yeah, it's a beautiful story of flourishing. And I wish it hadn't been 
sold to me originally as a story about Boaz. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, credit to Boaz for not, for a, a, a positive and good use of power, for not abusing the power that he had as a man, as a landowner. Um, I give him credit for that, but the, mm. he's not the center of the story, you know? Yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, even, like, at the end, he, he's not not to be seen that last chapter. We just go back, yeah. let's go back to the women, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. disappears, and and Ruth gets to be with the baby, uh, Ruth and Naomi. So, yeah, it's a yeah. very... But I never saw that in that story. It was never taught to me that way, you know? Mm. I sort of grew to, in faith through the evangelical church, and it was always oh, it's a type of Jesus, a type of Jesus, which I have to say, it annoys me to be looking for Jesus under every rock of the Old Testament because mm. I feel like we're not reading the Old Testament for its own sake mm. and how much it tells us about God Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we're like lifting every rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 100%. Uh, people will have, have come out just a little before yours, but I just recently interviewed um, Melissa Flora Bixler, who's written her book on the Old Testament recently, and we, we touch on similar things that, you know, mm-hmm. you can just appreciate what you can learn about God in these without, like, going, hey, look, a, a Christ figure. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I love Melissa and I love her book. I was so excited for it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so uh, staying with figures in the Old Testament, let's talk about Abram and Sarai or Abraham and Sarah, uh, depending on what part of the narrative you pick up on. Uh, yeah. But so... These, you, you kind of frame these up as our criminal immigrant ancestors of the faith. Uh, yeah. and, and through this story, you enter the kind of complex web of, of law, justice, and immigration. Uh, so it's not as simple for us to kind of characterise things as, well, breaking the law, meaning criminality, meaning um, disqualifying how we should treat you with any kind of justice, because uh, unjust laws will sometimes inevitably need to be broken in order for people to reach safety. Mm-hmm. Yet kind of consequently, consequently to that is when people are pushed into the shadowy corners, when people are pushed outside of the law and the, and the protections that it can, is meant to offer, uh, it puts immigrants at risk, and, and particularly women, uh, at the great risk of, of trafficking and the like. Um, now, so could you expand us a little bit on the, I guess, the more complex than often admitted relationship between between immigration law, criminality, and justice, and, and how you see that working out in, in the Abraham and Sarah story. So I was really um, inspired to reflect on Abraham and Sarah's story when I read Strength to Love uh, by Martin Luther King. And he reflects a lot in that book on law and what it means to follow the law and what we do with an unjust law. And so, you know, here in the United States, if you cross the border illegally, it's considered a criminal misdemeanor. It's not a felony. You're not going to go to prison for it. Um, As a matter of fact, up until Donald Trump's uh, presidency, you would get put in detention for a couple of days and then brought back over the border because it's a misdemeanor. It's not a serious crime. Um, So what I see there when, you know, immigration has turned into breaking immigration laws, which are civil laws, has turned into like a serious crime all of a sudden under Donald Trump. And people are looking at it that way. They want to build a wall. They want to go through all this expense. Um, 
really, and the only people who are going to be harmed and affected are not an invading army, mm-hmm. um, not gangs marauding or anything like that. It's, it's poor asylum seekers, uh, people whose lives have been destabilized, usually by U.S. policies in their countries, and now they're seeking refuge. They're, in many ways, refugees. In some ways, they're economic immigrants. But they're looking to come here for two main reasons, right? To work. They're all in their prime working ages. And to reunite their families, to keep their Mm -hmm. families together. So what I reflected on was questions that Dr. King asked. You know, good laws should be organic, not static. Mm -hmm. They should seek to help people, not put them in more danger or make them vulnerable uh, to different crimes or different attacks. And in fact, our immigration laws are not good here in the U.S. They are harming people. It seems like we care more about the laws than we care about the people they were designed to protect and to guide. And those are the questions that I wanted to raise. And I actually read quite a bit from Jewish um, rabbis and scholars who reflected on that, you know, from, from their own experience and from the collective memory of their people as well. There have been so many things that have been, quote, legal that are deplorable, that are terrible. And we now, you know, even now when we hear someone like Bill Clinton evaded the draft during the Vietnam War, we're like, good, because it was a terrible war. It was an unjust war. uh, And we don't hold that against him anymore uh, because of this, this war was fought you know, for the wrong purposes and it harmed a lot of people and so many lost their lives. There's so many things like that. There used to be an African was equated to three-fifths of a person and women couldn't vote and couldn't own property and couldn't inherit. I mean, there were all these laws that because we recognized were fallible, we amended and some we repealed altogether But yet when it comes to immigration here in the United States, people talk about it as if it's like immutable laws, you know, laws are like God, they're unchanging and people just have to obey them. Um, There's so much fear that drives that conversation here in the U.S. So I just wanted to raise that question. Like if we feel this way about immigrants, then we have to feel this way about Abraham too. And we can't, if we're not counting the mitigating circumstances that drove Abraham to traffic his wife, then we can't consider them for anyone, right? (laughs) But if we consider them for him, Mm. we have to listen to people's whole stories. We have to listen to what drove them um, Mm. here. And so so that's what I wanted to raise in that chapter. And my, (laughs) I originally called the chapter Abraham, the criminal criminal father of our faith. And my... (laughs) Editor was like, no, we can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, it's hard enough for people to think of him as an immigrant, uh, never mind, you know, a criminal. (laughs) I said, she's like, but you can talk about that in the chapter because it's a truth that Christians have to reckon with. Abraham did pretty terrible things and Sarah suffered most of them. And so we have to talk about that in a way that, you know, sort of drives the conversation forward. But yeah, Dr. King had awesome things to say about the law and about that book is just was deeply life-changing to me. Mm. Strength to love. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. And I think like that, that chapter especially resonates a lot with here also in the Australian context, which has um, horribly harsh and, and dehumanizing immigration laws and policies that, that yeah, again, like, um, yeah, yeah, kind of hide behind fear and the need to be, you know, strong borders um, uh, and, and yeah, just have led to deplorable things. So, so I hope again, and often those arguments are, oh, people try to arrive by boat, ergo breaking a law, and it's like, well, no, because they're just trying to seek asylum. So, like, but like again, like looking and you know needing to understand that a lot of these people, you know, wanting to not have to enter illegally, but um, you know, have been forced to because every other option has been removed from them, um, and every other hope has been too. And so it's just. Yeah, so if we can understand and empathise somewhat with, with these characters who are of significance to us in our faith uh, and our way of reading the world, then it might make it a little easier going forward. Right. So yeah, I thought that that chapter has a lot of uh, power for us here too. Mm -hmm. Now, we did just mention that, you know, Sarah bears the brunt of a lot of Abraham's uh, misguided or, or misappropriate action. Uh, but it gets complicated once we get a little further into the narrative and Hagar comes along. Uh, and here we see that Sarah maybe now a little bit further removed from, from her own uh, times of immigration, a little bit more secure, uh, and perhaps, you know, becomes easy enough for her to forget how hard it is to be a foreigner in a foreign place, how hard it is to be, um, you'll have your agency put in the hands of others and, and the way she treats Hagar, handing her over to, to Abraham for sexual surrogacy and then oppressing her, um, you know, once she um, gives birth and uh, once she gets pregnant, sorry. And you kind of reflect like on your own journey and, and the journey of many others that, you know, it's something that I guess so many people struggle with uh, is to continue to see immigrants or the vulnerable as people and to extend the generosity and welcome that, that you may have wanted uh, and that this is a difficulty that people face, whether they're maybe their immigration story is a long time ago or maybe it is recent. Mm -hmm. um, how do you? How did you come into this story? This uh, very complex story of of the way power dynamics shift and and cycles repeat. And how do you encourage people who are, you know, battling against these cycles or <clears throat> at risk of of kind of yeah forgetting? their own past vulnerability yeah you know i took i took the title of of the book from hagar's story the god is a god who sees because i was struck by how much god is with and god sees vulnerable people forgotten people outcasts foreigners the poor hagar you know being a chief representative of all of those groups and Interestingly, I was reading, again, Black feminist scholars um, here in the U.S., and they write, they see Hagar as a symbol, you know, of the Black woman's experience because Hagar is thought to be a dark-skinned woman, and she's um, enslaved and mistreated um, by her master and mistress. And in fact, Sarah, <laughs> yeah, I likened her to many people with, you know, immigrant descendants, right, here in the U.S., forgets her own mistreatment uh, in Egypt and what she suffered and turns around and inflicts great suffering on Hagar and mistreatment. And 
um, many of these scholars liken Sarah to, for example, the white slaveholder's wife, you know, who, yes, was oppressed and experienced a level of, you know, persecution, right, in her own circle, but in many cases turned around to further harm um, the Black women that were enslaved. And so that's kind of the way that Sarah, uh, Sarah is seen. And I was driven toward the story of Hagar because so many of the women in my families were came to the United States. And even though some of them, not all of them, but some of them were professionals in, in, in my country in Guatemala. But when they came here, all of a sudden, they don't have the language, they don't have the certifications, everything that you need to be able to work in the U.S. as a professional. And so they entered the job market as housekeepers uh, for wealthy American households. And in particular, my grandmother, you know, who did not have much education. Uh, that's what she did. She was undocumented. And I talk about my grandmother as this person who was the mother of my faith and a, an extremely important person in our family in terms of uh, keeping hope alive, you know, that things were going to, to be better for us in this country. And I don't think that the people around her ever saw her that way. You know, my father was a professional, was an engineer in Guatemala, and then came to the U.S. and was picking up garbage at a hotel with a stick, you know, and that's what the work that he could get here. And I asked the question, you know, I wonder if the people on whose vacations, you know, my father's labor, what, you know, built their vacation, if they, if they recognized him, if they saw him, the way that God saw Hagar. Because I'm so struck by that story and the fact that God not only sees Hagar, God appears to Hagar twice. Hagar's announcement, annunciation, visit from a messenger of God is identical to Mary's. And this enslaved, foreign, dark-skinned maid, you know, gets this promise from God that not only will she thrive and have a future, but so will her son. And she's going to get to see him marry from among uh, her own people. And what that must have been like for Hagar to know that God sees her, someone who's not Jewish, not important at all, not holding or bearing the child of promise. And yet God makes this promise to her and appears to her and she gets to name God and, and it's something nobody, no one else in the Bible gets to do. And I understood why Hagar became such an important symbol for black women and why she can be also a symbol for immigrants. In fact, um, so yeah, that story was, I found it deeply powerful. And I wonder if maybe Hagar is the mother of our faith <laughs> and maybe not Sarah, uh, just because of the way that God appeared to her and the things that God said to her, you know, since there's no difference between God and messengers of God, um, maybe we've been focusing on the wrong story all this time and not giving Hagar um, her due. So... Yeah, I really felt powerfully that the story revealed that the spirit of God is always in the places we least expect. And it was with Hagar, just as it was with my 
grandma who had a sixth grade education and used to read her Bible, you know, in this mansion in Los Angeles in her little servant room. And, and that God sees these things, that they, they matter to God. So I'm sorry, I don't even know if I answered the second part of your question. No, that's, that's, that's really great. And I mean, I love the story for, for some of the things that you're outlining there. And um, it's interesting, though, because I've led it, I've led, you know, discussions on the story a few times, especially when I was working in university chaplaincy. And, you know, you can get everyone really excited about, wow, like, you know, God sees this the person, why would God see this person? But God does. And and yet, and then she's the one who gets the name. Like, it's so beautiful. And then everyone asks the question, though, but especially after that first encounter, but God tells us she has to go back. Like, God God says you got to go back to this place where you're getting oppressed uh, and have your child there and, and, you know, essentially give over your child, um, you know, even though there's the promise that you get it back. Yeah. But, like, that's hard. And, and I wonder how that... Also, I guess, you know, reading from this, this lens of, you know, sometimes, yeah, the, 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 the victory or the, the something, the, the freedom is delayed, comes later after the reality of, and, and, you know, in some ways, you, you know, when I talk to the students, I'm like, well, Hagar can't really survive out in the desert on her own. In some ways, she has to go back to the, you know, this bigger household, like the way it would have worked at the time. Especially when she's pregnant in yeah. the desert. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but I, I just wondered about that, like, that there's almost a reality to it um, yeah. that there's this huge moment, but, like, yeah, reality also takes hold. And I, I just wondered about, yeah, how that also plays in, in this whole. Yeah. Web. Well, you know, interesting with that story is I wondered what it was like. The text doesn't tell us. You know, I'm kind of free to use my own imagination. But what, what it was like for Hagar to go back, having had this encounter with God, having had God preserve her life and that of her unborn child being told to go back, right? She sought her own liberation. She came to the desert and God rescued her there, but also said, go back. Mm. How did she go back? I mean, wouldn't you be transformed by an encounter like that? Mm. Even if Sarah continued to mistreat her, how was Hagar changed by that encounter with God? Whatever Sarah said to her, she had met God and God had preserved her life, you know, in the desert and God had spoken to her. Um, and so I, I too wondered at that, but I also thought about, you know, how that event changed Hagar and how she was probably different when she returned. And, you know, she seeks her own liberation again, right? The second time, second time she's actually evicted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that time she's not told to go back, mm. uh, which is which is really great. <laughs> yes. We don't have to see her go and suffer under Sarah's thumb, but we get to see her uh, be free of that and return to her own people uh, with her child. And so that was really encouraging to me that it wasn't even a call that God had for her forever, mm. but this was, I want you to return for this time. And the second time her son was older, Right, it's when she puts him under the bush and thinks he's going to die, and she brings him out. So, yeah. So I, that's what I wondered about. You know how the how the story was different when she returned after an encounter with God. Same thing I wonder about the, you know, the wise men. Hmm. How were they different after having encountered Jesus? You know, how how were they different when they returned? You know, back to their lands, and 
I think an encounter like that has to change you. Mm. That you're not going to be the same after that. Yeah, no, that's really great. Let's talk one more of these biblical characters. Let's talk the Syrophoenician woman and, uh, and the holy practice of sass. Uh, yeah. and, and, and how this sass fits in with, I guess, the, kind of the, the economics of immigration and also the, the role of advocates uh, mm-hmm. in, this, in this whole um, topic. Yeah. So interesting to me, the story of the Syrophoenician woman Honestly, I don't know what to make of it even today. (laughs) It's so hard to read and not think that Jesus was caught with his compassion down in a moment. Um, But I was always intrigued and, and troubled by that story simultaneously. And when I began to think of it as, wait a minute, the Syrophoenician woman is foreign. In fact, she's always described by this, you know, Appalachian, right? Um, Syrophoenician. We don't even know what her real name was. And interesting, Jesus is in her land. She's not trespassed into his land. <laughs> He's in uh, her land. But she has a need and she approaches Jesus. And the scandal of that encounter is often missed um, by us because there's no scandal today in a woman approaching a rabbi. But We know that back then that was wholly inappropriate and not done. She doesn't care. She has to survive, you know, and her child has to be well. And so she approaches Jesus. And again, uh, feminist black scholars, they said, it's sass, you know. They even compared her response to Sandra Bland. Uh, And if you remember, Sandra Bland um, was a woman who was, um, arrested for basically talking back to police officer. Mm-hmm. She was held, they call it contempt of cop. He arrested her because he was mad that she wasn't uh, respectful and, you know, deferring to him. And um, so she was arrested and then later died in, in prison under a suspected suicide. And so the the feminist scholar that I read talked about how, you know, the Syrophoenician woman encounters a very just and good man, right? And not only does he affirm her sassy response to him, but he does exactly what she asks of him. You know, he, he heals the daughter. But Sandra Bland didn't have that opportunity. She did not encounter uh, a just man. She encountered, a, you know, a sinner, a man who was angry and not feeling respected and you know, these terrible actions arose from that encounter. And I thought about how much that happens in immigration, that we have these, um, you know, we we just have Border Patrol are just people. ICE are just people. We know now that, you know, there's nothing that makes you magically just or good just because you're a police officer or just because you're an ICE officer. And so there's a lot of really terrible things that happen, um, that are perpetrated by people who are supposed to protect us and care about us. And so, so in the, in the book, I share a story of a woman who is also driven like the, like the Syrophoenician woman um, to leave, you know, to the Syrophoenician woman speaks up and goes to Jesus and has this very bold moment, you know, and 
the woman that I wrote about, she leaves her country, a young woman, and she arrives and she crosses the border and she continues to work hard and continues to tell her story, you know, in an asylum mm -hmm. setting. And what I wanted people to know about asylum is that one, it is not, people think that because you apply for asylum, you get it. And I know that at least in the United States and Canada, that's not true. Um, that you, it's, it's the most difficult immigration solution to get. Uh, most people have no proof um, of what they've suffered. You know, they go through these credible fear interviews and immigration is so discretionary. You know, you don't have to take into consideration any precedents. It could just be your discretion as a judge or as an immigration official or border patrol agent. There is no standard that has to be followed. It's not like criminal law here. Mm. And so, and yet people want to deny so many immigrants their right, you know, to seek asylum. And so um, I wanted people to know that, but I wanted people to know also that it's still important for immigrants to have that opportunity to still come. Um, it's, it's our law and it's a good law. And we need to allow people to come through and tell their story and have the opportunity to receive asylum. Um, and so part of that, what's interesting about the economics of, um, of immigration is that, you know, that I talk about in that chapter is that, you know, people wouldn't want to include this woman, right? She's the kind of person you don't want in the family. And if we think about citizenship, right, as belonging to a family, Oh, she has a need. She's unclean. <laughs> it's a woman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Let's just not let her into the family. Um, and, and this is what people often say, right? They Even uh, Donald Trump has said he wouldn't mind immigrants from Norway, <laughs> from Northern Europe, but he doesn't want the riffraff coming from uh, Central America and Mexico. But, in fact, immigration is really good for economies, even with all the fear around immigration, it benefits the United States economy to have immigrants. And, and I don't think that people should be cared for because they're good for economies. We should care about them because they're people. Mm -hmm. But this is also a reality that welcoming um, in God's economy is this good thing. It's kind of like tithing, right? Or giving to the church. It's like you give uh, sacrificially and you trust God, there will be enough for you. It's the same with giving of your country, I suppose, right? You, you welcome people and you trust God. And the fact is that what we saw in the book of Ruth, um, this mutual blessing and flourishing for the whole community is what could happen in our countries as well, except that we're so fearful that we're not going to have enough resources, but in God's economy, there's always enough. And so I wanted to get at that in that story that Jesus welcomed this woman into the family. She didn't just get the crumbs, you know, she ended up um, being welcomed and received and affirmed um, by Jesus and that we could do the same when it comes to immigration, but we live with so much fear around it that we don't trust God's economy. And yeah, it's a really powerful story. And I wish I, I was hoping that all the research I did in that story would finally bring clarity to what's actually happening there. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it didn't do that, but yeah, it did shed a lot of light, you know, for me on, on a lot of things, uh, just regarding 
the fact that advocates also need to speak up. Mm. You know, I have on my phone, um, the phone number, <laughs> it's actually in there uh, for my senators and my representative um, here in Baltimore where I live. And I call every week because yeah. I want them to know. I know the voices that are anti-immigrant in this country are so loud and we see them all the time, you know, and, and if an immigrant happens to do anything wrong, it immediately, you know, um, makes the news. And I told a story in a book about an immigrant who allegedly, you know, raped and murdered a young woman in Iowa. And immediately this became national news about immigration. And my thought was, well, immigration didn't kill this woman. Undocumented status didn't kill this young woman. What killed her was toxic masculinity. Why are we not talking about that? Why aren't we talking about violence against women? Mm -hmm. Why are we making this about immigration when it's clearly about something else? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is the climate that we're living here, here in the U.S., you know, and, and in many Western countries, it sounds like Australia is experiencing something similar. There's even an island off the coast of Australia, correct? Yes. So we have a thing, we um, have these offshore detention centres um, on uh, Manus Island and Nauru, although they're in a bit of a process of some laws finally changing. But um, yes, because it was the longest time they, because um, Australia is an island, right? So you, right. Um, now, a lot of immigrants um, who stay here illegally, most of them arrive by plane, like they're British backpackers who just decide they don't want to leave the beach. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But the ones that get attention are the ones who aren't from Europe. Uh, and who arrived by boat. Um, and so basically to stop that, uh, to, you know, so that they um, set up these detention centres offshore and basically the thing was if you ever even attempted to come by boat, you would automatically be disqualified from ever coming to Australia. We just have to stay in these detention centres until you decided to go to, back to your home country. Uh, wow. Which for many was an impossibility. It's either you go home to die or you... Wait, and, and people have been in these detention centers for, for years, and there were children in them. It was, it was, a, uh, and these are like, um, I don't know the Fahrenheit, but these are islands where the temperature is is consistently whatever, forty something, fifty degrees, which is very hot in our numbers. Right. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but yeah, the, these uh, de deplorable conditions, and and yeah, and we have we have the similar here when you know there was a, a stretch near an election when the only thing our media seemed to be running a story about was Sudanese gangs, uh, you know, causing ruckuses when, you know, their communities were handling that um, and could handle that constructively if it wasn't continually becoming nightly news and was obviously not reporting on exactly the amount of domestic violence that occurs daily, the um, amount of white teenagers getting arrested for violence or, or, or at least, you know, fights being broken up, you know, so... Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, the, the refugee topic has been one that church has been very trying, a lot of church has been trying to actively engage with here as well. And, um, and yeah, and then certainly nothing that Australians can throw stones at any other country about. Um, yeah, I mean, it's throughout the West. I feel like there's this wave of xenophobia that's taken over and this move toward fascism. Um, and it's so much of it is driven by fear. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the fact that Christians are supposed to trust God and are supposed to love their neighbors and are not supposed to be acting and living out of fear, right? The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Mm -hmm. But it feels like a very 
fearful political moment mm. and so many of the fears seem unfounded. Um, just, you know, the way that people here talk about a wall when we're talking about refugees, you know, building a wall to keep out refugees, it just seems just incredibly cruel and heartless. And yeah, it's, it's discouraging in many ways. And that's what was, I, in, for me, particularly encouraging about the story of the Syrophoenician woman. I was writing that chapter when they announced the end of um, temporary protected status for Salvadoran immigrants and Haitian immigrants, and it was just so disheartening. But I thought, no, you know, this Syrophoenician woman, she persevered mm. and she advocated for herself and for all people who would be denied wholeness, who would be denied um, life. And we have to continue to do that. And um, I had also read Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates, where he says, you know, we don't advocate because we're guaranteed success we advocate to keep our humanity mm. this is why we do this you know we resist because we're human beings and it assures our humanity that we do this and it's important for our souls even if we don't see you know any any success in the way that we think about it I mean for a lot of people when it comes to issues like immigration and I sincerely believe that in the United States both parties have no interest in finding a real immigration solution and in and in and in creating just immigration reform. Both parties neither are interested in really doing that. It's a it's really a losing game in terms of votes and the tide of the whole country and the attitude and the xenophobia. Um, but they'll each talk about it and sort of use it, you know, as this sort of tool um, back as if we're not talking about people. But I still think it's important for us to speak up. I still think it's important to be at the border, to be with immigrants. I think it's still important to do that because ultimately this is a human issue and we can't forget that. And I, you know, I try to keep that always at the forefront of my mind. It matters even in the most discouraging moments to continue to fight uh, for immigrants and continue to advocate for them because they're people, they're God's image bearers, and that's enough. Mm. You know, we don't need any more than that. So there is this, you know, in the in the chapter on Joseph, I kind of explore a little bit this, the way that xenophobia seems to take over uh, communities, in that case, Egypt. At one point, it was philoxenia, right? The welcoming of immigrants, the loving of immigrants, and then the, the tide changes. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that that's just happening in the world. The tide is changing and it's, it's um, yeah, it's so troubling, but it's important I, for Christians, for people of faith to really stand with immigrants. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, you, you write in the introduction that the, this is a book that's for always. Like it's not, this isn't, we don't talk about immigration and welcome and belonging. You know, it's not like that is any more important now than that's always going to be an important thing to talk about. But, but as you say, there is a certain, we are in a particular context where, where works like this are immensely important. And, and it's very helpful that it ends with, with resources and ideas for action that are, that are both specific and holistic. And, and I, I highly recommend um, 
the book, even just for that fine bit. Uh, so, and we could keep talking, but but you have, I'm sure, many wonderful things to go into. Uh, so, Karen Gonzalez, thank you for joining us here on Love, Rinse, Repeat. The book is The God Who Sees, which is available for pre-order now. Get on it. Uh, how else can people connect with you, support you? What do they look? What should they be looking yeah. at? I am on Twitter and Instagram uh, uh, at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. I would love to connect with you and talk immigration. And Liam, it's so great to talk with you. I feel like I could talk with you the rest of the evening. This is like the best interview I've had on this book. And I'm deeply grateful for the way that you think theologically and deeply about these issues. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very, very kind of you. So uh, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. We'll, we'll talk All more right. about it after it's been out for a while. Get another boost of sales. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, thank you very much for, for being here. And uh, yeah, all the best with the book as it unfolds. All right. Thanks. <laughs>